Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith and one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, Ari Shapiro. All right, let's start the show. That was a good one. Yeah. I'm always Aww. judging her performance every week. Th- that was Betty, really did great. She's really becoming a pro at this. She, she wants a contract. She's told me as much. Anyway, <laughs> hey, y'all, this is NPR. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Each week, we start with a different song. I'll explain this song in a second. But first, as Aunt Betty said, two all-stars here today. So happy to have you both here. Aria Shapiro from a little show called All Things Considered. Hey, Sam. Hi. Thanks for being here. Tamara Keith, my old friend, still friend. <laughs> yes. From the NPR politics team and the NPR politics podcast. Good to have you here. It's great to be here. It's nice to be in a booth with you again. Takes me back. This is the booth. Thank you guys for being here. Have you guessed this song yet? It sounds like Janet Jackson. Yeah, it sounds like Janet Jackson. Yeah. Which Janet Jackson song can you guess? Oh, give me a minute. It's from the album Control. The Pleasure Principle. The Pleasure Principle. I'm just happy that I knew it was Janet Jackson. Yes! Kudos to you. <laughs> Kudos. Uh, I'm playing this song for a reason. Um, Janet Jackson's not so much in the news this week, but Justin Timberlake oh, right. is. Halftime show. He, yes, he's going to be doing the halftime show for the Super Bowl next year. Uh, this is several years after 2004, when Janet and Justin were performing, and we all saw that now infamous wardrobe malfunction. It yeah. was early in the days of DVRs. And you and can so freeze frame. We, yes, we were like, oh my gosh, we're at a friend's house who has a DVR. And we like Go went back. back frame by frame by frame. And we were like, oh yes, yeah. we did see yeah. something. And I bring up Janet and I play Janet because I was always kind of upset with the way that Justin Timberlake kind of got off scot-free. Mm-hmm. And Janet's career really never recovered. You oh, I don't think that's the reason her career never really Ooh, recovered. You I, do, really? I, that's part of it. I feel like she had a career she arc did. that was she a had hugely a big successful yes, career totally, arc. Totally. And, I, I mean, she was the biggest she was in the late 80s, early 90s. I and wanted her to be big this was forever. 2004. <laughs> I think I'm a little too much of a Janet fan because I wanted her to be the biggest thing all the time. You know, Timberlake said of the way that he and Janet were treated in the aftermath, he said, quote, I probably got 10% of the blame, and that says something about society. I think that America's harsher on women. You don't say, yes, Justin. Yes, think? <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> but, Janet, we love you. Justin, we love you. I'm yeah. looking forward to the halftime show. Absolutely. Also, not to get too heavy too soon, but I do think all the news about Weinstein and the other sexual harassers ties into the gender divide in ways that go far broader and deeper than just accusations of sexual abuse and harassment Mm -hmm. that you don't believe women unless a large group of them Mm -hmm. come out and say something loudly in force and And they have to be on the record and in public and and then we'll see but typically their careers are the ones that suffer more oh yeah and when there's ever a conversation to be had around interactions between men and women. It seems like women are forced not just to carry the conversation, but to have a higher burden of proof Mm -hmm. and to take more of the responsibility for whatever happens. We digress. Yeah. 
All right, we're here to discuss what happened this week, the latest on this feud between the GOP and the president. Uh, we'll talk about Indonesia because Ari was just there, huh? I was, and I've got a whole bunch of stories all queued up that yeah, are going to yeah. air in the days ahead. I love it. We'll talk about that, yeah. And we'll call a listener somewhere out in the country. Let's just get started. I want us each to describe this week of news in only three words you all have prepared. Uh, Tam, you're up first. Just say no. So Why those words? Well, as I was listening to President Trump on Thursday give Mm -hmm. this big speech about the opioid epidemic, he started talking about his brother, who uh, was an alcoholic, whose life was destroyed by alcoholism. And died because of it, right? Yeah. And he was talking about how his brother told him, don't drink, don't smoke. And President Trump says that he has never had alcohol and has never smoked cigarettes. And then he said... So I was thinking maybe we should have this big ad campaign to tell kids not to use drugs. We're going to bring back D.A.R.E.? And I thought... I loved my T-shirt. Nancy Reagan is shouting from the grave. Just say no. Just say no. How did that read to the crowd? Because I'm sure a lot of families would say it's not that easy. And and the medical community would say it's not that easy. And it, well, right, it, a huge percentage of people who are addicted to opioids started out taking a prescription that was given to them by, by their doctor. doctor. Right, like yeah. something like forty percent, only forty percent of those people who are addicted to opioids, heroin, fentanyl, or oxycontin, or those types got to it through recreational use. Huh. So sixty percent started with a prescription yeah. or some other yeah. pathway to addiction. Yeah. Outline for us, Tam, briefly what Trump announced. He made a declaration about the opioid crisis, right? Right. So for about two months, he's been saying that he is going to declare a national emergency as relates to the opioid crisis. Yeah. What he ultimately ended up doing was declaring an emergency under the Public Health Act, public health emergency, which is a little bit different. If he had declared a different kind of emergency, it might have meant all kinds of disaster funding, just like with you know, a hurricane or something like that FEMA, right? would have come through. But instead, it's a public health emergency. The White House argues this is a a more reasonable, better, ultimately long term, better way to handle this. But in the short term, it means there is no new money. It allows some money to be moved around in different ways. Yeah, within existing yes, grant programs. But, but no there's new money. No and, new and money. Also, telemedicine has something to do with this. <laughs> yes. So telemedicine, what do we mean by that? That basically means that someone can uh, see a doctor without going into the doctor's office. They could see a doctor in a big city while they're sitting in a more rural area at home. So basically, by declaring this emergency, it allows some waivers of some rules and would allow more people access to telemedicine services. Which actually does seem important since this is such a problem in rural communities Uh where there are fewer doctors. Exactly. So there's a doctor shortage and the telemedicine element of this is the public health community really believes that for most people, the best way to treat a substance use disorder is through medication-assisted treatment uh, for people with opioids. Yeah. So uh, methadone, buprenorphine, some of these other drugs that reduce the craving and allow you to return to society. Yeah, And it's hard to get those drugs uh, under the current rules, so telemedicine would make that easier. Yeah. How prepared is the Trump administration to really go full force 
against the opioid crisis when right now they lack a secretary of health and human services? We all know that Tom Price is out of there. Is there a drug czar even? Nope. Uh, Actually, the nominee for drug czar last week had to withdraw because there was this 60 Minutes story about how he had pushed through legislation. He's a congressman. He pushed through legislation that uh, drug distributors wanted Hmm. that actually made it harder for the DEA to crack down on opioids. That was an incredible investigation. And reading it, I thought to myself, I know these lawmakers don't see themselves as complicit in overdose deaths. We all were, though. But a lot of people reading that story are going to say these lawmakers have blood on their hands. And President Obama signed that bill. Mm -hmm. And the bill passed through unanimous consent. There Uh were no no votes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. What I was thinking this morning uh, is why hasn't there been just a big bipartisan bill on massive funding to fight this? It seems as if Democrats and and Republicans admit this is a big problem that needs resources to fight it, right? So two years ago, there was a big bill and there was a lot of money. It turns out it's not enough. So the Trump administration, as the Obama administration before it, has been administering these grants that were part of that program. But it is believed by many people in Congress on both sides of the aisle, this really is not a partisan issue. Like you take all the things that the Trump administration and Congress could work on. There is really bipartisan consensus on this. Yeah. And they need a lot more money. They're talking about not hundreds of millions of dollars, but billions Mm. of dollars that ultimately will be needed. And this is a long-term problem. All right, Ari, what are your three words? My three words are Comey's on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Which which might sound like a small detail and might sound like something that we already knew or at least suspected. This is Comey, James Comey. This is James Comey, former former head of the FBI, who was fired by President Trump, who... Back in March, he revealed at this panel discussion that he lurked on Twitter under a pseudonym. (laughs) And this enterprising reporter named Ashley Feinberg, who was at Gizmodo then, now she's at Huffington Post, figured out what his Twitter account was. And it was called Reinhard Niebuhr, I think. It was like like an obscure philosopher. And she's sort of like triangulated by who he was following and who was following him, going through Instagram and Twitter. And everybody suspected, but nobody knew for a fact. And yeah. then suddenly, this week, that Twitter account started tweeting images tweet, from tweet, tweet, Iowa tweet, tweet, tweet. with these little, like, fall <laughs> was landscapes. like, in the middle of a road, yeah. wearing yeah. sweatpants well, and sneakers. Well, so finally, that was the last one, was like an image of, of James Comey from behind this tall... No, it wasn't his face. No. And it then was, there yeah. were all of these, like, you know, crazy speculative tweets. Of, oh, he's in Iowa. Maybe he's going to run for office because the Iowa caucuses. Uh-huh. And then somebody pointed out that he was wearing running shoes and they were like he's running he's He's literally (laughs) running so it's so easy to imagine the drama in washington as some kind of tv soap opera Mm -hmm. where you thought the comey character's dramatic arc had ended months ago bring him back the character is back and of course comey was leading the investigation into the trump campaign's ties to russia Mm -hmm. after he was fired the deputy attorney general rod rosenstein appointed former fbi director robert Mueller to investigate this quasi independently so all of the russia stuff has been unfolding partly as a consequence of Mm -hmm. comey's firing and at the same time this thing about comey's on twitter to me points to a larger truth of Mm. where we sit right now. Just this week, Twitter said that Sputnik and RT, which are sort of Russian 
propaganda news yeah. organizations are going to be banned from Twitter. At the same time, Tennessee Republican Senator Bob Corker and our President Trump are having a fight on Twitter. Twitter has become, and this is not a new thing, but it was a thing that was really illuminated starkly this week, a forum where policy and politics plays out in real time. And you have to be there. You have to. And if you're not, like RT and Sputnik, there are going to be consequences. Mm -hmm. And taking a step even further back, to me, this points out the extent to which companies like Twitter and Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon are shaping our lives. And because of that, some say have a really bigger responsibility to monitor what goes on these platforms. And the people who are making the decisions for these huge tech companies are not elected. And they have at least as much power as many elected officials. I will say, I mean, like, also with this Comey stuff, seeing him resurface reminds me yet again that we'll actually never stop discussing the 2016 election. We never will. The whole dossier news this week. There were, like, more headlines about Hillary Clinton this week and a 2010 uranium deal. Mm -hmm. It's never going away. And the dossier, we should explain, was was a sort of opposition research paper that this week it came out was funded in part by people in the Clinton orbit. And so, Yeah. yeah, it's as though she is still running. I have three words. They are, we're all aggrieved. Hmm. which I think has been the state of the country for a while now. But also, this week it came into sharp relief for me because NPR released a new study on Americans' views of race and discrimination. Uh, And the study basically found that literally every racial group (laughs) says that they feel racial discrimination. Um, Including white people, although not a majority of white people had personally experienced discrimination. So a majority of white Respondents said that discrimination against whites is a thing, but when pressed to name examples of it in their own lives, a much smaller number could point to specific examples. Um, the study's worth checking out just to really get a view of like how race, which is kind of a part of everything, our politics, etc., how fractured we are on this issue right now, as we are on so many other issues. But there were some really interesting plot points that stood out for me, particularly how your income affects your views on race and discrimination. Mm. The lower income, the white respondents, the more prone they were to say that they experience uh, discrimination because they're white. But the higher income, the black respondents, the more they saw discrimination. It was like this inverse. Really? Yes. See, one of the reasons that racism is so difficult to tackle and so insidious is that in so many cases, you don't know whether someone is treating you a certain way because of your race or because they woke exactly. up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. Yes. And you're left to guess and infer and, and think, drive am you crazy. I crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, Gene Demby over at our Code Switch team, it's a unit that covers race, ethnicity, and culture here at NPR, he said that perhaps the reason that higher income blacks see this more is because they're around more white people. Hmm. The lower income you are as a black person, the more likely you are to be isolated with other black people, right? The whole thing is worth the read. Uh, Gene has a nice write-up. Don Gagne has a piece about it all as well. Um, It is fascinating. Yeah, and on the radio, I guess we're going to hear a whole series of stories uh, looking at this from specific perspectives of specific demographic groups, and some of them have already started to air. They've been really interesting. They have been. We're all aggrieved. All right, time for a quick break. Coming up, more news of the week. And later, we'll hear our listeners tell us the best things of their week. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll be right back. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationery, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earned dollar for dollar. No caps and no catch. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Cash back match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders with two all-stars, host of All Things Considered, Ari Shapiro, and NPR White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. You guys, quick question. Yes or no? Amazon has a new service out called Amazon Key. You pay two fifty, and Amazon installs a remote operated lock in your house. Two dollars and fifty cents. Two hundred and fifty. Okay. But once you have this lock thing in there, it allows Amazon to unlock your door when you're not there. Oh no! I saw this so episode of Mr. Folks, Robot. That's so, not so they can deliver stuff. House. Why no. not? It'd be easy, you know. So, Did you see this episode of Mr. Robot where no. the whole smart house started going crazy? <laughs> That's not going to be my house. Yeah. So you're a nah. I'm what a about nah. you? I'm a nah. I've installed a Nest and I have an Alexa and that's probably, I've already let the computers in way too much. I, I, I like unplugged my Alexa for a week just because I was like, you're getting on my nerves right now. I don't trust you. <laughs> Time out, Alexa. Time out, Alexa. I did that. I did. All right. Now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance where we call a listener somewhere in the world and talk to them about the news in their neck of the woods. Today on the line, we have a listener from Texas, Aaron Dutka. Aaron, you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. All right, you're on the line with two friends of mine, Ari and Tam. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Hi, guys. So uh, what do you do out there in Houston? I'm a teacher. What do you teach? I teach reading intervention for kindergarten through fifth grade. Oh, so wow. all, the, all the kids that are struggling with reading, I pull them and work with them in small groups trying to help you know get them where they need to be what's your favorite kids book oh gosh there's so many i think (laughs) secret garden the secret garden Mm. is one of my favorites that's a good one yeah so we're calling you this week to talk about how a lot of americans like yourself are recovering in the aftermath of some major hurricanes and wildfires across the country uh houston was hit hard by hurricane harvey recently uh how did it affect you um, I had 61 inches of water in my house Whoa. after Hurricane Harvey. That's yes. like six feet of water. Yes. Were you able to take valuables and heirlooms and, you know, um, photographs and things like that with you? So we put things on countertops, mm. expecting that to be high enough. But that wasn't high enough. It wasn't uh-huh. high enough. So we literally just had what we had in our bags when we left. Wow. Or things that were up in higher cabinets and things like that. And so since the storm hit and your home flooded massively, you've been, what, crashing with friends or what? Yes, with a, with a friend, a co-worker, actually. Okay. So, wow. yeah, we, uh, we're we living here, and another couple that also flooded is living in the same house as well in another extra room. Whoa. It's you and your boyfriend and two mm-hmm. beagles, if I heard correctly. Yes. All right. Two, two loud beagles. <laughs> and so it's all of y'all there with two other couples in this house. Yeah. Now, you have been dealing with FEMA, correct? You've applied for what kind of assistance? Um, I was just trying to get, hopefully get some housing assistance so we could maybe rent something Mm -hmm. temporarily, maybe even a long-term hotel, something like that. Mm -hmm. How'd that go? So, well, when I initially applied, a couple days later looked and it said I had been denied and had no idea why. 
um, spent a lot of time trying to get answers from them. Did you get answers? Um, well, initially, I went to one of the locations that they set up, waited a couple of hours, finally got to talk to somebody. But you mean like waited in line said, a couple hours? Yeah. Oh. Um, and when I finally got to talk to somebody, they weren't able to pull up my application to look at it to tell me why I had got denied. Oh, he my basically goodness. said, here's the phone number. Oh. He, and he actually said that FEMA was answering calls 24 hours and it was best to call like after midnight. Oh, my God. So I stayed up on a weekday, you know, workday, until after midnight to try to call. And lo and behold, they weren't actually taking calls that late at night. No. No. Yeah. Through all this drama, from what you've told us, you did get an inspector to come out at some point, right? Yes. Yes. I finally was able to get through on the phone. They fixed the problem because I had apparently checked that it was not my primary residence. I don't remember ever saying it was a secondary residence. Do you have a secondary we'll residence? Go with it. No, not okay. at all. Okay. So you get the inspector out there finally. What happens then? The paperwork went through, I guess, whatever the inspector did. Um, a couple of weeks later, I go and check on my application, and it said I was denied because I have flood insurance. Oh. So And so you've appealed that denial, right? Yes. I had to get a denial letter. But they know that flood insurance doesn't cover housing assistance because the government is the one that provides the flood insurance. So you have no aid right now? Yes. I um, filed my appeal October 6th and still haven't heard anything. Well, I will say I did reach out to FEMA in advance of our call because I wanted to just Uh see what they're saying about all of this. And I spoke with a spokesperson who's based in Houston. Uh, Her name Mm -hmm. is Pam Salsby. And I said, listen, we're talking to listeners that are dealing with crazy wait times, technical errors. They're just desperate and stuck, and they feel like FEMA's not really helping them out right now. And she basically said, I get it. FEMA gets it. We know that this is a crazy time for people, and we're really kind of under the gun because they're dealing with, what, three hurricanes and the mm-hmm. aftermath of all those wildfires. They've had over some four million calls in the last few weeks. Yeah, I believe it. Have you come up with a plan? Um, we've, we know that we can stay here probably through the beginning of December because at that point, um, the person whose house it is, my coworker, her, um, daughter's graduating and we'll be moving back. So, oh, so they're going to take we, your bedroom. So at, yeah. <laughs> okay. So at, at, so at that point we have to figure something out. So that's kind of, we're in a kind of bind, um, as to, uh, what we're going to do. Yeah. What are you going to do this weekend to de-stress? I'm actually going camping this weekend. We're getting oh, ready nice. to Ooh. pack up, and um, there's actually a renaissance festival that happens uh, Ooh, north of Houston. Okay. So we like to go and people watch. Have and, a turkey leg. Yeah, yes, definitely. Lots of meat on a stick. Um, <laughs> and then we just like to, to stumble back to the campground and, and do that. So it'll be a nice little break from everything. Yeah. Well, have a good weekend. Enjoy the Ren Fair, and we're rooting for you. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Good bye. Bye. Bye-bye, guys. One more thing about FEMA. You know, I was talking to this spokesperson and also two private contractors who used to work with FEMA. And one thing they all made really clear to me is that after a disaster like Harvey, people have outsized expectations of what FEMA should do or can do. And they're never going to be the agency that does the whole recovery for you. And there's a real debate right now over whether something like flood insurance, which encourages people to rebuild in, in a flood place zones. that has flooded in the past, yeah. is really 
the most helpful thing yeah. for figuring out what we're going to do with bigger storms, hotter wildfires, disasters that because of climate change are going to be becoming more intense in yeah, years ahead. Yeah. Just to close, I want to say that um, if you're in Texas, FEMA has extended their deadline for individuals to apply for assistance to November 24th. In Florida, that deadline is November 9th. In Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, that deadline is November 19th. Listeners, we want to talk to you for this segment. If you want us to give you a call and hear about anything in your neck of the woods, just drop me a note. Tell me what's going on. SamSanders at NPR.org. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with Ari Shapiro from NPR's All Things Considered and my former politics podcast co-host, NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hello. It's like old times. It is. Do you want to talk about politics? Oh, wait, we're about to do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is time for our main story of the week, which is, drumroll please, politics. Uh, So last (laughs) week on the show, I talked with some folks about the growing civil war between President Trump and the GOP. This week, I want to talk more about that civil war because it seems as if a general has been anointed. Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona. Interesting idea. Is he a general in this war? Or is he like, he's leaving the battlefield, actually. I mean, he wanted to run for re-election, and the poll numbers were saying he wouldn't win his primary. Yeah. The primary. And let's just catch our audience up. Uh, This Tuesday, Jeff Flake, Arizona Republican senator, he gave this 17-minute speech on the Senate floor where he did not just announce that he wouldn't run in 2018. He said that he had to free himself from considerations that consumed too much bandwidth and would cause him to compromise too many principles. It was an anti-Trump kind of rant uh, that seemed to be in some ways unprecedented. I think rant is the wrong word. It was was, was very carefully thought out. It was measured. It was emotional. But I have come to think of a lot of these people who are speaking out as are Asterix retiring. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because. Our meaning Republican. Republican. Yeah. Retiring Republicans. Retiring. Because Bob Corker, senator from Tennessee, he has been going after Trump, but he's also not going to run for reelection. In a way, these are alarm bells ringing at the same time that the people ringing those alarms are admitting defeat. That. Trump remains president. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party remains supportive of his agenda. Even Corker and Flake have, on the whole, voted for the bills that President Trump has supported. And the same day of Flake's speech, Flake later voted for a GOP-supported measure to uh, make it a little bit harder for consumers to go after big banks. Yeah, I mean, this isn't about policy. This is about norms. This is about temperament. This is about defending the First Amendment and and Attacking Gold Star families, supporting conspiracy theories. These are the complaints that Corker and Flake and some of these other uh, Republicans have, it's not about the tax legislation or about health care. They've been party line votes on that. Yeah. So I was listening to Rush Limbaugh's show earlier this week while I was driving somewhere, and he was talking about Corker. It was the morning before the, the Flake speech, so Flake wasn't in his discussion, but he was saying, look at Bob Corker. All He was like, all of these Republicans who are elected were prepared for Hillary Clinton to win. They were prepared to continue being the same Republican Party Party in opposition to Hillary Clinton. But then Donald Trump won. And he won by saying, I don't believe in your free trade. 
I, you know, don't believe in your nice, polite conventions. He's even wishy-washy on the idea of smaller government because in some ways oh. he supported infrastructure measures. Mm-hmm. He's he has cool said he with wants, growing the deficit. He said that he wants bigger health care at certain points. So he is... So he is not an establishment Republican. And what Rush Limbaugh labeled this as, and, you know, Limbaugh is not necessarily a thought leader, but he often reflects the view of sort of the Trumpian base, at least. He's like, these are the establishment Republicans cracking up as as President Trump and Steve Bannon and and the base is winning. My question, though, one, does it really change anything about the math for the midterms? And two, what does this mean for possible tax reform? Let's just talk about the status of potential tax reform. There was a there's movement on a budget measure with the budget, which allows them to overhaul the tax code with just 50 votes instead of 60. That is significant. It's this process called reconciliation, which for those at home smiling as you say it, you're so you're geeking out right now. I love it. For those at home who are following (laughs) the efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare, that was the same process that they used for that. It's sort of a budget trick that allows the Senate to sort of bypass the filibuster. But but doing it that way with reconciliation, it makes it easier on the GOP because they need fewer votes. But it also makes it harder because there are budget rules that say basically when you do it this way, through reconciliation, some of these new tax cuts have to be paid for, which is why you're hearing these conversations this week about doing things like paring down deductions and 401k contributions and loopholes. And one man's loophole is another man's very important, fair part of the tax code. The challenge with simplifying the tax code is that all of these changes that have been added over the years are the result of intense lobbying by some interest group. Mm -hmm. And whenever you try to strip out those benefits and those loopholes, some interest group that is spending a lot of money to fund the campaign of some lawmaker is going to say, don't you dare let this happen. Uh, And not to mention, like some large number of voters who are like, hey, wait a second. I like that deduction. I like that deduction. (laughs) Uh, I'm not even going to ask you guys to predict what happens with this thing because we don't know. We don't Uh, know at all. this rhetoric that like this is the GOP's last chance to do something, do we believe that? I think if they don't get this, they'll try something else. But in President Trump's first year, I mean, at first the deadline was, in the first hundred days. Yep. Now we're talking about in the first year. Mm-hmm. They've tried and failed to pass a lot of big legislation. I do think this is the last chance in his first year. Now, whether that arbitrary number makes any difference is debatable. The yeah. problem with his second year is that that is a midterm election year. That mm-hmm. is a year when every single House seat is up for re-election and about a third of the Senate is up for re-election. And so... Things are harder to do, generally speaking, in election years. Basically, as a president, you are never going to have an easier time getting something done than in the very beginning of your term, especially if you have control of both the House and the Senate, which is what Republicans have right now. Mm. Ari, before we move on from our main story of the week and get to my fun, fun game, who said that, I want you to talk about uh, your most recent trip. You were in Indonesia for how long? I was there for two weeks Look doing this big reporting project that is all going to air in one week on All Things Considered and with a little uh, yeah. stuff online and elsewhere. Yeah. So um, Indonesia is an economic powerhouse, a very populated country well, that no one talks thing. about. Yeah, it's the fourth largest country in the world, the third largest democracy in the world. It is 85% Muslim, and in its founding documents, pluralism, diversity, and coexistence are huh. the basis for this country's hmm. identity. I mean, 
people generally know that Indonesia is a Muslim country. There are more Muslims in Indonesia than in the entire Middle East oh combined. I had no really? Idea. Yes. I had no and, idea. Yes. And, and this is a country that celebrates pluralism and diversity. And so I went there to look at what holds this country of 17,000 islands together. What it's, is it? Well, so there are many, many <laughs> different answers. But one is that this founding idea of the word is Panchasila, which is sort of like it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you worship God and these other uh-huh. ideas of coexistence and diversity. Yeah. So I did lots of different stories about religious tensions. I did have a profile of this young female stand-up comedian who comes from a conservative Muslim family and wears a hijab. I met a food blogger. I mean, the other thing about Indonesia is that yeah. a food blogger, the, the, <laughs> av- the median age in Indonesia is 10 years younger than huh. China or the United States. So this is a really young country. So there are like 700 languages spoken in Indonesia. Here's one fun fact. Even though almost everybody in the country speaks Indonesian, 93% of people do not speak it as their first language. Wow. So imagine if like 93% of Americans grew up speaking a language other than English, and then everybody learned English to go to school and do business. Can Indonesia's success on that front, achieving unity with lots of different types of people, is that the new normal for the rest of the world at some point soon? And what can we learn from that? So this is the question that I'm exploring, right? Like, what can the United States and other countries learn from Indonesia? One analyst that I spoke to said Indonesia is basically like a swing state in the region. And everybody's trying to exert influence, and there are worrisome trends and tensions, and people are saying, oh, is there a conservative creep in society, Mm -hmm. or is this just the push-pull of any democracy? These are all the issues that I'm exploring. And is it an unqualified success story, or are there real tensions? There are real tensions. And look, this country has only been a country as we know it with a democratic system and uh, since like the 90s. Huh. So it's still Since young. Janet Jackson was hot. <laughs> well, she's still... Well you take that played, back. Well I think she's swell. <laughs> Janet, if you're listening, I support you and I affirm you. I mean, hot I on Janet the charts. Hot on the charts. <laughs> I hope Janet is listening. Janet, if you're listening, we want to have you on the show. Yeah, we do. Give us a call. Yeah, we do. Uh, Ari, folks can hear your stories beginning next week on All Things Considered. Yes, Love all it. week long. All week long. I love it. All right. And we went with a photographer, Claire Harbage, who took some extraordinary, beautiful images that are going to be on NPR.org. I bet you Janet's really big in Indonesia. I bet she is. I bet she is. Why not? You know, for whatever reason, American 90s rock is so big wow. in Indonesia. Wait, like, which like, part of the like 90s? Pearl Jam. Okay, that's like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. I never saw it for Pearl Jam. <laughs> well, Sam, that is the difference between you and me summed up. Perfectly. <laughs> I like. Was it Jeremy? Yeah, that I'm not was gonna great do my Jeremy oh my God. voice. Jeremy spoke in class. Oh yeah, yeah. that's a. Throwback. I'm not doing it. I'm, yeah. I'm you just it. did it. Jeremy spoke. Wow. <laughs> and that video was really sad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I spent well, so much time a, thinking about that video and analyzing I mean, it, it as a young dark. person. It was dark. All right, time for one more quick break. When we come back, we'll play my favorite game, Who Said That, and we'll hear our listeners tell us the best things of their week. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And if you're looking for a new podcast, check out the TED Radio Hour. Every week, we explore what it means to be human. We go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, insights, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. You can find it on the NPR One app or however you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. 
You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. We are back. It is time for my favorite game. Who said that? that? (laughs) Wherein you make your guests look kind of dumb. Let's do it. Uh, Y'all are going to do well this week, I believe, in my heart. Uh, Oh, wait. Disclaimer before we start. As you guys know, the winner gets absolutely nothing. Perfect. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. All right. High stakes. You know, there. so someone on Twitter who follows the show, uh, she commented recently that Janet we, Jackson? Yeah. <laughs> if you're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and even if you're not, uh, listen to the show. Uh, but they said for the first time like ever, we had uh, panelists get all three right. It rarely happens. I think it's only happened once. If it's only happened once, maybe you should make them a little bit easier, Mr. Sanders. I like a good challenge. You guys got this. First quote, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standing. Who said that? I know this. It's like the publisher of the sports website that's trying to Close enough. You both win. Uh, (laughs) It's this startup site called The Athletic. Uh Uh, That sentence was uttered by Alex Mather, one of the co-founders of The Athletic. The Athletic is this new subscription sports journalism startup. Basically, their goal is to hire all the local sports writers and have them work for The Athletic. And they said that their business model is to basically, like, put local sports pages out of business. And then he had to apologize on the for same sounding day. like such a jerk. On the same day he had to apologize. Imagine the head of a tech startup sounding like a jerk. What? <laughs> he said, quote, I'm truly sorry for the tone of my comment in the New York Times. I learned a lesson in humility that will help me grow as a leader. No, I think what he learned a lesson in was how to speak on the record as mm-hmm. though a more benevolent, as though you're a more benevolent person than you actually yeah. are. Yes. Yeah. Everyone, like, forgets that journalists are writing this stuff down. (laughs) When you call us, we're recording, we're writing, we're taking notes. Anyway, next quote. Ready? They decided to use our vessel to teach their children how to hunt. They attacked at night. Oh, uh, 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 Russians on Twitter. (laughs) Ari's got the fire today. Oh. They decided to use our vessel to teach their children how to hunt. They attacked at night. Uh, raccoons? Even worse. Sharks. Oh. oh. Yeah. So what? this was dark. Jennifer Appel. She's an American woman who was sailing from Hawaii to Tahiti with another woman, uh, Tasha Fuyafa. Oh, they were just rescued after like five months. They were right? stuck in the water five months, and sharks circled their boat trying to eat them. Oh, and there were two dogs on, boat, on yeah. the boat, too. They had enough food to survive that yeah. whole time. They were on a 50-foot sailboat. They suffered engine failure and a broken mast in a storm. And they drifted for 5,000 miles. They were rescued wow. this week, five months stranded, surrounded by sharks in the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Uh, that idea of being attacked at night, yeah. teaching that... Oh. She said that... Uh, 
the sharks would come by to slap their tails, which would tell them that it was time to move along. Uh, they survived because they had water purifiers and a year's supply of dry food. They made distress calls for 98 straight days. Lord goodness. Oh, Glad they're safe. Yeah. yeah. Sharks are scary. I have never had a desire to sail the world. I don't really get on Me boats. Me neither. I don't really get on boats. Yeah. I, I enjoy I a boat if somebody who knows what they're doing is in charge of the boat. Yeah. They probably know what they're doing, though. That's yeah, the wild yeah, Clearly, because they survived for five months yeah. at sea. Last quote. Uh, the quote is, we'd be like, dance, pose, dance, butt slap, butt slap, pose. Is this like a K-pop artist? One more quote that might help is this. The genius of Tom Hanks to do that finger point. We did not tell David, him to David do it. David David has pumpkins. Oh, oh, oral history. Yes. 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 This week there was a big, long oral history of the SNL David S. Pumpkins skit. It was in Vulture this week. So those quotes were from SNL writer Street Seidel and SNL cast member Mikey Day. Um, Mikey Day and Bobby Moynihan were in this David S. Pumpkins skit with Tom Hanks, which is infamous and classic there's also a new David Pumpkins Halloween special on NBC this week, and it's animated. I'm not going to watch that, even wow. though I love David S. Pumpkins. I'm no, not watching I'm that. I'm going to stick to Charlie Brown. It was a great skit, though. What are you guys doing for Halloween? Are you gonna, I was just going to say, are you going to be David S. Pumpkins I'm for on the fence for buying one of the suits. They're fairly expensive. Mm. Really? That's like stupid. $60, $70 for a suit that I will wear once and yeah, only once. Right. What are you going to do? I'm going to take my kid trick-or-treating. What's it going to be? Uh, he is Iron Man this oh, year. Yes. What I love is that these kids' costumes have these incredible muscles. So you have this right. like skinny little five-year-old with these big muscles. Cute. Bring pictures. I will. What about you, Ari? So I sometimes perform with a band called Pink Martini. Yes, you do. And we have three nights at the Kennedy Center with the National Symphony. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. On Halloween? No, it's, a, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. On the actual Halloween, I will be hosting All Things Considered. <laughs> Wear a costume while you host. <laughs> all right, Tam. All right, we're almost done. I promise. You're like, I thought we were done. No, <laughs> I want it to keep going. It'll keep going forever in our hearts. First, though, I want to plug Tuesday's episode of the podcast. I, uh, I talked to an author you guys have probably heard of, Daniel Alarcon. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He hosts an NPR podcast as well called Radio Ambulante. But NPR's I, first Spanish language podcast. Yeah, and it's really good. But I talked to him about his new book. It is called The King is Always Above the People. It's a collection of 10 fiction short stories, and it's riveting. And it's a heavy, emotional piece of work that really uh, outlines some big ideas about what it means to be Latino, what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to move somewhere else. And those kind of themes, I think, are really timely right now in a time in which we're having conversations about walls and who gets to stay. Um, And so this book of fiction ends up telling some really interesting truths about some of our politics today. And I love the conversation. Cool. And Daniel was really smart and thoughtful, and I think folks will like it. Uh, Listen to that on Tuesday. Awesome. With that, we're going to end the weekly wrap as we always do. Each week, we ask our listeners to send us a recording of them sharing the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage them to brag. Brent puts it all together for us. Let's take a listen now. Hey, Sam, this is Esteban from Houston, Texas, and the best thing that happened to me all week was fixing my girlfriend's car. She was having steering column issues that would have cost her over $400 at the shop, but after buying some parts and doing some YouTube research, I was able to do the repairs myself safely, and now her car runs like new again. Wow, that's a good boyfriend. And when I was done, the smile and the kiss that she gave me just made me feel amazing. (laughs) 
Esteban for the win. <laughs> hey Sam, this is Christine from Bulgaria. The Hi. best thing that happened to me all week that um, was that my mom called me to say good morning some of the days. Huh. Hey Sam, this is Tom from Roanoke, Virginia. The best part of my week is that my wife and I are sitting outside of the doctor's office and we just found out that our little bean that's due in March is a little boy. Aww. Hi Sam, this is Megan calling from Akron, Ohio. And the best thing that happened to me this week is I got to celebrate my 33rd birthday with five girls I've known for over 15 years. Yeah. We spent the weekend recreating the sleepovers we used to have in high school, <laughs> complete with ice cream and yearbooks and the same old stories we've all heard a million times. That sounds Love like fun. It. That's great. Hey, Sam. Great. It's Nicole from Dallas. And the best part of my week was watching the Astros make it to the World Series. <laughs> Good job, my Astros. dad was calling me from Houston at 11 p.m. while I was sitting in a bar just... So excited the Astros finally made it. It's been 12 years. Hi, Sam. Hi. It's April from Tuskegee, and the best thing that's happening to me all week is that it is Tuskegee's homecoming. So, T U U, no. So, the best part about this homecoming is that we have an alumni choir rehearsal um, oh. where people from as far back as the 1930s and 40s come back and we just sing That's pretty amazing. much have a jam session that sounds um, real from fun. all the songs that we sung with and we hear their stories and it is my favorite day of the year all right just want to let you all know that it is homecoming so y'all send us your well wishes i'm doing it right now april so two weeks ago i reached out for some help after finally realizing that it wasn't just new mom blues this last year there's something more going on and I thought that the best thing that had happened to me all week was that I'm finally starting to feel like myself again. Oh, that's good. Mm. But wow. then today, my son took his first steps oh. just in time for his dad to see before he leaves for deployment. Oh, my oh, gosh. Wow. wow. And I think that might have taken the cake. Yeah. <laughs> have a good weekend. That is a week. A lot in there. Love your podcast. Keep up the great work. Have a great weekend. Bye. Thanks to all of those listeners uh, that sent us the sound of their voices. Esteban, best boyfriend ever. Um, Elizabeth, Christine, Tom, Megan, Nicole, April, who actually we called on the show a while back. She was a long-distance call. She's so fun. Enjoy Homecoming, April. We listen to all of these that come in. We get a lot. Uh, they warm our hearts all week, every week. We wish we had time to play all of them. We don't. But know that when you hit send on those emails, it lands in the show inbox, and we do hear it. So thank you all for sharing those. Uh, also, Nicole mentioned the World Series. Shout out to folks rooting for a team, either team, whichever team you like. As a Texan, I support the Astros. But as someone who thinks that Dodger Stadium is beautiful, I support the Dodgers, too. You and Dodger dogs sides. are great. <laughs> you don't like the Dodger dog? They're fine. I like the Dodger okay. dog. I just love the view of the palm trees and the sunset from Dodger Stadium. All it's that. a beautiful thing. Go sports ball. It's something worth watching. <laughs> uh, if you want to share your best thing all week, you can do so at any time throughout the week. Just record yourself and email the file to samsanders at npr.org. With that, Mama, we made it. Janet, take more us Janet. home. More Janet. Never <laughs> enough more Janet. Janet. This week, the show was edited by Jeff Rogers and Steve Nelson. Our big boss, the VP of programming here at NPR, is Anya Grundman. The show is produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Refresh your feed Tuesday morning for my chat with Daniel Alarcon. Tam, Ari, you're two all-stars. Thank you all. Thank you, Let's Sam. Leave this the is booth. like a giant hug. Hugs to Janet. Hugs yeah. To Hugs Janet. to Janet. All right, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.